Well, it is my privilege this morning to begin our time together during the sermon to uh, say thank you to all of our mothers and wish them a happy Mother's Day. And if you're a mom here today, we have a special gift that we would like to give you. So if you're a mom, um, or maybe you're a mom and and your kids have since passed, um, if you would stand with us at this time, uh, if you're a mother, would you stand? Uh, We're going to clap for you and also hand you a flower. Just uh, please remain standing until you get your beautiful flower, and it's the least that we can do to honor you today as you've gathered with us here at White Oak. And so moms, thank you for all that you do, all the sacrifice. It's been interesting. It's been on full display at my household. Um, I am like a day shy of getting over a uh, really bad stomach bug, and my kids have it as well. My wife is the only one that has not gotten it. So she's been taking care of us the entire weekend and doing a great job at it. And it's always like, thank goodness mom doesn't get sick. You know, we know mom does get sick sometimes, you know, but if one person's not going to get sick, you want it to be mom. And so that's been our household recently. Um, But you do so much for so many people. And I want you to know that your, your role as a mother in the story of God and his scriptures is so vital. Um, motherhood is one of the greatest displays of Christian love represented in Christ that we see in the world today. And so thank you for all that you do. Um, I do also want to acknowledge today that today um, can be a hard day for many people uh, for many different reasons. Maybe you have lost your mother or maybe you've lost a child um, or maybe you want to be a mother and have have struggled to become a mother. Uh, Today can be a very difficult day for a lot of people and we always want to acknowledge that. And so if for for any reason today um, is a tough day for you, please just know that we love you and that we're with you. And as a community, we want to support you. And so we want to honor our mothers, but we also want to be sensitive to the fact that today is tough for people. And as a community, we, uh, we care for each other in all the diversity of life and experience. And before we dive into the sermon today, um, I want to announce a couple things that also we're going to talk about at the end of the service, but I'm just so excited. I want to throw them out there in advance because um, for me at White Oak, summer is one of like the, my favorite times of the year. I don't know why it is, but summer is always a really special season here in our church. And uh, normally during summer, we do not do community groups. We kind of give you a break as people are traveling or um, just kind of give you a break from that rhythm to spend time with your family over the summer. But what we like to offer is um, some special summer classes that really can help you go deeper in your faith in ways that are needed because summer is a good time for that. We often call it summer school, which is pretty cool. Um, but uh, the, the, we have two classes that we're offering over the summer in addition to all of the rest of our groups that normally meet on Sunday mornings. Uh, the first is that on Wednesday nights in June and July, we have something we're calling a summer deep dive on the topic of prayer. And so we find that for many people, they they know that they need a stronger prayer life or they know they should be praying, but they struggle with prayer. And so we just felt as as leaders in the church that prayer was something we really needed to focus on in this season, especially as we're restarting our church and and becoming New Day Church here in the fall, here at this location. Uh, We just want to be strong in prayer and give it to the Lord. But uh, we just find that for a lot of people, their next step is to really get to know God personally, but without prayer, it's hard to do that. And so if you want to grow in your prayer life, if you struggle with prayer, and that's something that you want to grow in, we're going to be having a class led by uh, Pastor James, as well as John LaChapelle, one of the guys that often leads music with us here on Sunday mornings. Uh, they're going to be leading that on Wednesday nights over here in our community building. 
Um, the cost is $20 because it provides a book. Um, and so if you want to be a part of that, we only have 50 spots available because it's all the room will really hold uh, for it to be manageable. And so if you want to be a part of that, you can sign up at the back table back over here, or you can also go to whiteoakchurch.net on the front page. Uh, we'll have a, a place there where you can click and register for that. So please register for that. We're all going to be a part of that together. And we think it's going to be a great time of growth in the Lord. Uh, secondly, we also have um, a marriage study as we have more people coming into our church that are married and young families. On Sunday mornings in June and July, we're going to have a study called the, uh, the Merge Marriage Study. Say that three times fast. The Merge Marriage Study. And um, it's just going to be uh, looking at biblical marriage and how we can uh, strengthen our marriages in the Lord because healthy churches are often built around healthy marriages. And so uh, we've got about 24 spots for that one, and that'll start um, on June something. It's, it's coming up. I don't have it on my notes. So. But that'll start at the beginning of June. That'll be Sunday mornings. And um, if you want to be a part of the, both of those, you can be a part of both of those as well. Um, my wife and I will be part of both of those. And so uh, please feel free to join us for those as well as all of our other normal classes that meet. Okay, so got that out of the way, okay? So the title this morning is Humility Wins. Humility wins. And I wanted to preach this sermon on Mother's Day because uh, though it's not explicitly about motherhood, we all know that mothers exemplify this the best. And so Humility Wins is the title this morning. We've been in a series entitled Real Family, just looking at the relationships in our lives. And we want to thrive in our relationships. Relationships are some of the most important things in our lives. And so we've been looking at what biblically it looks like to have healthy relationships. And so if you have your Bible, open it up right now. Let's meet together in Philippians chapter 2, towards the end of your Bible, Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read part of a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he planted. So he helped start this church. And 10 years later, he's writing to them to continue encouraging them in the Lord. And what's really important about this letter is that of all the churches that Paul writes to, Paul has a special affection for the church in Philippi. Um, Many commentators note that of all the letters that Paul writes, he rebukes this church the least. And so that's how Paul loves you, by not rebuking you that much, right? If you read books like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, you know Paul knows how to get ghetto. And yet right here, Paul comes in and he's really loving and he's really encouraging to the church. And so Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11, if you'll stand with me at this time in the honor of reading God's word. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated at this time. So the sermon title this morning is Humility Wins. And I think that's an important message for our world today because maybe you watch the news or maybe you get on social media from time to time and it seems like people today cannot agree on anything. (laughs) Everything is just something to argue about. Every topic is a place where we can argue and show that we're more smarter than other people and that we know more things and our position is right. And humility is not really a high priority in our world today. It doesn't seem like we often prioritize humility when it comes to leadership in the world today. And so um, it's interesting because though we live in a divided world, I believe there is one thing that everybody in this room probably agrees on. And it's this, that Chick-fil-A Where is he going with this? That Chick-fil-A has the best customer service of any fast food restaurant in the world. Can I get a witness, right? Can I get a witness? There we go, yeah. We don't agree on this, right? We, we don't disagree. Everyone agrees on that. If not, you're just crazy. I'm sorry. Because think, I mean, think about like, you go to customers, uh, Chick-fil-A and like the, the most amazing customer service, and they say like, my pleasure to serve you, Right. No, one go, no, no offense if you work at one of these places, but no one goes to Burger King and is like, man, they have the most amazing customer service at Burger King, right? Amazing Whopper. I love the Whopper, right? I don't go there for customer service. I go there for the Whopper, right? But you don't say that about Burger King, you know? You don't go to like Popeye's and like, man, they know how to make you feel like a million bucks at Popeye's, right? They got some amazing spicy chicken. I'll give you that, right? I don't, I, if I want spicy chicken, I go to Popeye's, right? But they're not really all about the customer service, it doesn't seem like, right? No one goes to Taco Bell and is like, man, they know how to treat you right at Taco Bell, you know? But Chick-fil-A is like this unique place where when you go there, it's just like they, they not only are willing to serve you, they are happy to serve you. And they say, oh, it's my pleasure to serve you. And it's like, how is it your pleasure to get me extra honey mustard packets when I should have asked for it at the counter? You know, I don't get that, right? But they want to serve you. And then you're sitting down at your table, right? I need to get a witness, but you're sitting at your table. And, and they come around and ask if they can refill your drink like a million times, right? And it's like, it's funny when they come up to ask like, hey, can I refill your drink? It's like, I don't really need a refill, but I have this like sneaking suspicion that you will be happier if I let you refill my drink. Then, so even though I'm 80% full, yeah, please, you know, extra half and half tea, please, you know. But it's like, they, they love to serve you. And yet you probably already know this, but, but here is the secret to their wonderful service. It doesn't just happen. I've actually known people that have worked at Chick-fil-A and been managers at Chick-fil-A, And they always tell me how intentional they are to train their employees in this level of service. They're not just better human beings, though you might think that, right? They're trained to do it. They're trained to serve, and they're trained to be happy about their service. And I say that because in the same way here in this letter, Paul is teaching the church in Philippi how to serve and love one another to create a healthy culture so their relationships can thrive. And so as you hear this today, I promise you, this can be a great benefit to your marriage. It can be a great benefit to every friendship you have. It can be a great benefit to your community group. It can be a great benefit to your church experience as a whole because what we so often don't realize is that the health of our relationships so often determine the health of our life. 
and of all the things that we could be improving in our life, would not the relationships, besides maybe just our, our general walk with God, would not our relationships be the most important thing? And so let's look at this passage. Let's go back to verse 1. Paul is just teaching us, even in this day, how to have healthy relationships. And so he says in verse 1, writing this church he loves, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And the first thing that Paul says here is that the church must strive for unity. And this applies to all of our relationships, but he's, he's speaking this in the context of the church, and so I want to situate it there, that the church must strive for unity, that if we want unity in our relationships, we must strive to have it, we must be intentional about it. And this is important because in a divided world, we have the chance to show something miraculous as the church. We have the chance to show a united people and a loving people in light of all of the division in our world. But we must not be passive about this. We must be intentional. Uh, one of the things, the ways that House and I have shown this in our marriage, and I don't know where I got this from, but somehow I got this when we were about to get married. Um, and probably because I knew myself, and I know I like to have a good joke, and, and sometimes maybe it can come at somebody else's expense. Uh, but when we were about to get married, we had this rule that um, you're not allowed to do, we don't do any rude joking in our marriage, like towards each other. And so though it's funny to pick at your spouse, and though it might be funny from time to time, we just kind of felt like that would kind of set a bad tone in our relationship. And it's funny because it was one of the best things that we ever did in our marriage. And we would even say that probably the moments in which we've strayed from that, our marriage has not been better for it, you know? It's like I don't pick at her for how she doesn't do something fully, and she doesn't put, uh, pick at me because I don't do something fully. You know, we're not, we're not trying to point out through humor, if you will, how you're failing or whatever, right? We want to encourage each other and build each other up because the moment that you denigrate somebody, even in a joke, you're, you're breaking apart the, the unity in a sense that God wants you to maintain, and so in our church, but also in our family, we have this conviction in Scripture that a great we is better than a great me. A great we is more important than a great me. Being a part of a great we or relationship in our marriage or in our church or in our community group or with our friends is more fulfilling in our life and more of God's will for us than just for me to get my way on everything. And I think this is the thing that we often miss that Paul is reminding the church in Philippi about, is that there is, there's so much power and fulfillment when you have wonderful relationships in your life. We miss how fulfilling it is to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And we think that life will be great if we just get all of our dreams or do everything that we want to do in life. And though that can provide some satisfaction, there's this idea in Scripture that what's even better is to be a part of something special, that God is in the center of with other people in this life. And let me illustrate that just really quickly. Imagine maybe you have like a roommate or something or you're married or whatever, and you and one other person are trying to decide what color you're going to paint a new room, okay? And one of you is like repose gray. That's like what all the, the hipster young people do nowadays is repose gray is the color. We actually use that in our house, you know, because it's Joanna Gaines or whatever, you know. Um, but you're like repose gray. And the other one of you is like, no, no, I want bright orange. 
you know, or, or maybe like, maybe not burnt orange for like the Longhorn fans, burnt orange, okay? And you're debating between like what color you're going to paint this room. And there's this like impulse in us to like argue over it and like think about your spouse. It's like, you know, well, I want this and I want this and I'm going to be sitting in this room. So I want to like the color, you know, and what if I don't get my way on this thing? And, and though it might be important to get the color that you like on the wall, what, what I would argue to you and what I think scripture teaches is that your life will be a better light for Christ, but also more fulfilling, not if you get your way on that thing, but if you, if you have a wonderful, thriving relationship with that person. Like, we could get our way on almost nothing in life, but if all of our relationships were unified and were life-giving and were loving, would that not be so much better? And yet we tend to kind of ruin our relationships or, or, or kind of create disunity in our relationships because we, we value things and ideas and preferences over the people that we're called to walk with in this life. And I would just beg you and implore you to invest your life in your relationships and in the unity more than any other preferential thing that doesn't really matter in the end. In Psalm 133, it says this. I think it'll be up on the screen. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's just good. I love this verse. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, you probably have no idea what that means, but doesn't it sound good? Just oil running down, you know, it's like a Tresemme commercial, you know, except it's oil and not shampoo, you know? Beard, and, and just for a little bit of, of background, like Aaron was a priest in the Old Testament, right? And priests were set apart for the service of God. And when they would pour oil on them, that would kind of consecrate them or set them apart for the service of ushering God's presence to be amongst God's people. And so simply stated, what he's saying here is that unity is the evidence of the presence of God for everyone to see. That though we often think, well, if someone comes to my church, they'll like it if the preacher's good or if the music's good or if the coffee's good, which are all very important, obviously. That I would argue far more importantly is they see unity and love in the relationships of the people. As Jesus says in John 13, they will know you're my disciples by how you what each other? Love each other. And so of all the things that people need to see when they walk into this place and see what does the kingdom of God look like, unity is that thing. That unity is what they're longing to see amongst a people. That, that when you see it, it looks pleasant because you watch cable news and that doesn't look pleasant because it's all d divided. And you watch stuff on Facebook and people, it just, it's divided. That doesn't look good. But when we're united as a people, it is so appealing in a broken world. And so we strive for unity in the church. And here's how we do that individually. We, we live holy like Jesus. We're putting to death sin because our sin causes us to wrong each other. Uh, it causes us to be selfish in our life. We also forgive each other. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail each other, but we forgive. We're, the Bible says we're quick to forgive each other. I'm not looking for a reason to, to bag on you. I'm, I'm not looking for a reason to point out why you're not good enough. I'm the one supposed to be encouraging you. We shut down gossip or slander or when someone speaks ill of somebody or is kind of airing grievances. We, we just say, man, that, that, that doesn't contribute to unity in our body. It's not good. We realize that we all have to give something. We, me has to give something to create a healthy we. 
You know, I think people always forget this in, in marriage is like, it's only gonna be about half of your old life and half of you is gonna literally die, if not more, right? And her family's gonna be involved and his family's gonna be involved and we're gonna become this new little thing, right? And we have to be willing to give up things because a better, a we is better than a me. But also when you think about it, everything we do in a local church contributes to unity. Listen, we sing together and I get it. You might not be the greatest singer, okay? And that's why you don't have a microphone and that's okay, right? But we come together, right? And we sing. And like, well, I'm not a big singer. Well, I know you might not be a big singer, but we sing because we all sing the same song in unison. It's, it's a way of contributing to unity in the body. It's powerful when you see a lot of people singing the same thing, isn't it? And so we sing even if we're not good. You know, we give the good people the mics and then the rest of us, we just stand out there and we just sing, you know, and that's good, right? That's how we do it, but we do it in unison. We listen to a sermon together. We, we tithe and financially support the local church together. We take the Lord's Supper together. We serve in the same ministries. We, we gather together and unite in community groups for, for community and for love. We pray for each other. We're, we're a part of the same activities. Almost everything we do as a church contributes to unity. And so as a church and as a marriage and in your relationships with your children, we must strive and be intentional about finding unity. But how do we do this? What is our posture? Paul shows us in verse 3. Look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Listen to this. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, here's the key word, humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Every problem is solved with this verse. Every relational strain is solved with this verse because what Paul is saying is that the path to unity is simply humility. Humility in my life. And so I can't control other people. I can't control what other people do, but I can control by the Spirit of God whether or not I am living in a humble fashion. And this right here is a secret to every healthy relationship, every healthy church, every healthy marriage, is that the secret to healthy relationships is mutual humility. That we're both willing to be humble towards the other. Humility is, as I say, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is remembering that other people are really important too. And their needs and desires in life matter just as much as my needs and desires matter. Listen to this amazing quote by John Stott, who was one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. Wherever you're at in your, in your Christian development right now, this is so important for you. Hear this, please. He says, at every stage of our Christian development, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. That applies to you wherever you're at in life. At every stage of your Christian development, pride is your greatest enemy. It's holding you back. It's keeping you from growing. It's, it's keeping you from happy relationships. Pride is your greatest enemy, and humility is your greatest friend. And what I honestly believe is that most people do not choose humility because we don't yet know how rewarding and fulfilling it is in our life. 
God is not calling us to humility so we can just be abused in this life. We should not be abused by the people or taken advantage of. But humility mutually given in a relationship creates something so beautiful, so Christ-glorifying, so fulfilling that it's better than getting your way on things or trying to beat into everybody else's head all the things that you need for you to be satisfied. And so the path to unity is humility. And one of the things I think it's so important to remember in, in any relationship is that we're on the same team, you know? I feel like Halsey and I remind ourselves of this a lot, and even more so since we've had kids, you know? It's like we're on the same team. Like, like me getting on to you, me making your life more stressful makes my life more stressful, right? You creating disunity in your church makes your church more disunified, means your church is not as good, it's not as Christ-glorifying, it's not as fulfilling, it's not as helpful. You giving your coworkers a hard time does not make your employment any better because we are united and we are connected, and because of that, we should strive for unity. But the way that we do this is, as it says in verse 4, we look also to the interests of others. We don't just walk in saying, what do I need to get here? We walk in saying, man, I love to serve. There's a really fascinating study you might have heard of. It's called the Bowen Family Systems Theory. I've been reading about it recently because of a book that somebody recommended, and it, it came out back in the, the 20th century. But um, the theory is very complex, but just simply stated what it says is scientifically that you can prove that we are emotionally connected to everybody that we're in a relationship with. And so the same way we can spread sickness, we can also spread things like anxiety and unease and anger and frustration. And so anybody that you're in a relationship with, they believe that scientifically they can prove that you have an emotional connection to them. And so to some point, how their life goes impacts how your life goes and how you feel in life impacts how they feel in life because we are connected to each other. And so Satan wants you to go down, and one of the ways he does that is by getting you to want other people to go down, so you go down with them. And what the Spirit says, remember, we are united, we are one, we are together. It's why in Hebrews it says that you should submit to, to, to authority and, and not make it harder on your leaders because they, they said that would be of no advantage to you. And so we're working together and encouraging each other for unity and for love. I know every mom in this room knows this, right? When your kids are making bad choices, you know, does it impact you? Yeah, probably more than it impacts them. Because we're connected, and that's a beautiful thing. But the, the beauty of the gospel community is to realize this and to love each other so that, as I know Pastor James often says, we begin to create the upward spiral in life where everybody is benefiting. Everybody is thriving because everybody is serving one another. And yet in verse 5, we get to the crux, really, of Paul's argument because he brings us back to the gospel and back to Jesus, which is so important. He kind of summarizes it in verse 5 by saying this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is so beautiful. 
because it gives us the theological and the intellectual reason for, for why we do this and for why it makes sense. And the, the application of this passage is simply this, that following Jesus, being like him, forms us into a servant to those around us. And so that if we're following Christ, the people that we are in relationship with, we know and we're happy to serve them. And so we serve our children, and we serve our spouse, and we serve our friends, and we serve our community, and we serve our coworkers. That if you're in my life, you get served by me, and that's how this works. And we walk in ready, we walk in excited, because this is ultimately what Christ has done for us, and this is a way that we get to demonstrate the gospel. But notice what he says in verse 5. This is yours where? In Christ Jesus. This has to be deep within you. This can't just be a life principle. You say, I don't really need Jesus. I can kind of do it on my own, right? I mean, the, the reality is I remember being like in elementary school and like they're talking about, you know, doggy dog evolutionary theory. And I'm like, do we not realize that based upon this, like all of you guys are my competition in this room. I'm trying to outlast you, you know, that, that those kind of mindsets, they, they don't breed unity. They breed competition, and yet in this, what it says is Christ has served you, so you serve other people. And when we realize what God has done for us, and when we're living this out in our life, then we can truly have these kind of sacrificial, loving, servant-minded relationships. And he gives a beautiful Trinitarian image, which the Trinity is the, the, basically the way that we explain God biblically, where there is one God, but he's in three persons. And so there's one God, but in Father, Son, and spirit. And so this is beautiful because what it means is God is one. There's not three gods, there's one God, but three persons within that one God. And so God can come into the world in the form of Christ to love us and serve us, but God the Father can still be ruling and reigning over all. And yet what Paul says is that when Christ came down, his mission wasn't to prove over and over again that I'm the same as God the Father. Don't forget this. You know, he constantly said, I only do what he tells me. I submit myself to him, that he's fully God, but he's also submitted within himself. And so he's demonstrating service. And so we are children of God. We are worthy. We are valuable, but we don't live our life to constantly show that to everybody because God has already secured that for us in the gospel. So instead, we live our lives serving people because we know who we are. We know how beautiful and powerful we are. We know how special we are in God's eyes. I've got the affirmation I need. I just want to love you now. And can you see how that begins to build these beautiful, healthy relationships? And we have to stay close to Jesus for this because the narrative of the world is just focus on yourself. That's the narrative of the world. The world and the culture around us is constantly discipling us to focus on ourselves and our desires and our dreams. And yet Jesus is calling us into loving, humble relationships because when we focus on ourself, it harms every relationship in our life. If you're living your life to focus on yourself and just kind of uh, have whatever your desires are met, then you're hurting your marriage, you're hurting your church, you're hurting your kids. And yet God wants to pull us out of that lie and to give us fulfilling, satisfying relationships that glorify Jesus. I think this is why motherhood is such a beautiful illustration for this sermon, because though the biology of motherhood is important, what I really think makes somebody a mother biblically is how much they serve and how much they love. Because you can adopt a child and raise it just like your own, 
And even though the, the biology component might not be there, I mean, somebody chose to love and to serve you. And, and don't take for granted that, that your mother chose to love you and chose to serve you because she didn't have to, but she chose to. She wanted to. This is also why mothers feel probably more fulfilled than most people do in their lives is because they know the secret of service. They're humbly serving and they're a part of God's plan and they're demonstrating this. This is also why serving the local church is so important. I think so often, uh, you know, and I, I understand it, you know, we might not like to serve because maybe we, we miss a sermon or we don't get to be in the music for a Sunday, and, and I totally understand that. But when you begin to realize that service is just as much a part of being a Christian and a part of a church as listening to the sermon is, all of a sudden it starts to make more sense. That our wonderful, faithful volunteers that are not listening to the sermon right now because they're literally in our kids' ministry loving and serving our kids— that they're doing the exact same thing that we're doing in here right now. They're worshiping the Lord. They're living out the Christian life. And so everything from the music to the preaching to the community, that, that all of those things are leading us to service. Service doesn't take us away from the community. It doesn't take us away from what we're supposed to be doing. But service invites us into the life of Jesus and into the things that we are supposed to be doing. Service is the climax of the sermon. It's the climate. It's God, you're so good. I'll love your people and I will serve your people. And so following Jesus forms us into a servant to those around us. And so as we draw to a close, let's look at the last three verses here really quick. This is my favorite part of this entire passage. Paul goes off on a holy rant and I absolutely love it. Talking about service and how Christ is the epitome of this, he says this, Therefore, because of the service of Christ, God has highly exalted him, being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." And if you don't know the, the context to that, you, you might not really know the power of what he is saying there. The church in Philippi was um, in a place that was a Roman colony, and so it was under the rule and reign of Caesar. And so when the church of Philippi is, is reading this, and back then, I mean, Caesar was everything. He was ultimate. I mean, he was thought to be God on earth. And right here, it's almost like Paul is taking a direct shot at the powers of this world. He's, it's a direct shot right at Caesar. Because he says, Jesus is the highest king because he became the lowest servant. And Paul said to the church, he's saying, listen, I, I know you think that power is cool and being in charge is cool and having armies is cool, but the way Christ does it is better and Caesar's going to become nothing in history, and Jesus is going to become everything. And to live in the reality 2,000 years later where he was right, it's so powerful. The reason why he says that, that every knee will bow to Jesus is because usually a knee would bow to Caesar. And that every tongue would confess. They would expect to say that the Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is in charge, that Caesar is to be followed. And Paul says, no, 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 every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. 
that God has given him the name above every single name. Not because he controlled people, not because he had huge armies, not because he was the president, not because he had success in a business, but because the kingdom is a place of service and it is service that leads to greatness. And so we should celebrate mothers today because mothers are great because they serve. And the more that we love and the more that we serve the people around us, the greater in God's eyes that we become, the more that we glorify Christ, the more we live out a gospel-centered life. Because we're proclaiming through our life that service really is greatness. Church, let's serve each other. Let's just love each other. Maybe you need to go home and have a conversation with your spouse and maybe apologize for just being too picky about stuff and, and really focusing on the stuff and not the relationship. Or maybe you need to ask forgiveness of somebody in, in the church. Maybe you haven't been contributing to, to unity. Or maybe there's someone in your life you're called to serve and, and you just haven't been serving them. How beautiful would it be to say, in the name of Jesus, I repent, I love you, and I want to serve you. You see, in the end, humility wins. It wins churches, it wins marriages, it wins salvation through Christ. It wins the game. And so let's be humble people that gladly take on the form of a servant for each other. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you're just the perfect image. That on the cross, you, you demonstrate everything that we need in this life. Father, would you bring us back to service? Would you bring us back to the real meaning of life, which is the relationships that you've called us to foster? Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and to help us in the areas in which we're selfish and we're weak and we're just so obsessed with our own life and focusing too much on it, Lord. God, that never turns out well. And we're glad, Lord, that you have something better for us and that that's demonstrated in Christ. God, may the church of Jesus be the place synonymous with love and service in unity, in a broken and divided world? Would he really be a city on a hill? We love you, Lord. We give our lives to you to serve those around us and to serve you. But because you most importantly first loved and served us. I pray all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the time in our service where we take of the Lord's Supper. I love that this is a rhythm in our church where we remember 